Welcome to Love Your Heart, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic's Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute. These podcasts will help you learn more about your heart, thoracic, and vascular systems, ways to stay healthy, and information about diseases and treatment options. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. I want to welcome everybody today. My name is Sean Lydon. I'm the chair of vascular surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, and I'd like to introduce my other two physicians we'll be working with today. Uh, one is Dr. Scott Cameron, who is the uh, chief of the Department of Vascular Medicine, and Dr. Christopher Bezier, who is uh, one of our intervention cardiologists. And we're going to talk a little bit today about carotid artery disease, where it sits in 2021, and, and sort of the things we should know. So maybe we'll start off with uh, Dr. Cameron, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about for the patient out there, what they should know about carotid disease, who gets it, who should be checked for it, and, and, and how should it be sort of managed? Yeah, that's a great question, Dr. Lydon. And what I find is a lot of carotid diseases found incidentally, patients may have some unusual neurological symptoms such as blurry vision, double vision, um, and then they'll have some kind of imaging study done of the neck. And then we find out that there's some narrowing of the carotid artery. And then, you know, from my decision uh, making, it's a case of, is this something that we treat medically? As you know, many of them we do treat medically, or is this something that needs an intervention? Now, on the other hand, sometimes when I'm examining a patient, if I'm treating a patient with coronary artery disease, for example, um, it, it, as we know, one third of those patients also have peripheral artery disease. Sometimes that manifests in the, the carotid. So if I'm listening to them and I hear a brui, which is basically narrowing in a blood vessel, um, I can't tell how narrow that is, but then ultrasound will settle that out for me. And so by using the ultrasound, you can then determine, is this something that we would continue to manage medically or is this something that even though that patient doesn't have symptoms, should we consider referring them for a surgical procedure or um, stenting of the carotid artery? And, you know, Chris, you as a cardiologist take care of people with heart disease all the time. Um, you know, I think one of the things that uh, I struggle with as a vascular surgeon is when we see people, most of these problems are managed medically and uh, trying to explain to the patient that, all these things to control their medical risk factors are so important. You know, what are the kinds of things we talk to the patients about, about things that they need to control, watch out for that, you know, overall is going to help reduce their risk of carotid problems, but really hurt their overall cerebral vascular care in their heart and other places in their body? That's an excellent question. And I always uh, sit down with my patients and I talk about things that I consider to be not modifiable which would be things like genetics. You cannot change your family and what your genes are that you inherited from your ancestors. And uh, usually males will have this disease more frequently than females, but it is a disease that will affect females as well. But I spend a lot of my time talking about the modifiable risk factors, which would include, and most importantly, uh, the use of tobacco and tobacco cessation being uh, prime importance. And then we also will talk about cholesterol, which can be either dietary, uh, so we talk about limiting uh, fats and cholesterol in the diet, and or perhaps the use of medications such as statins to be able to control the uh, cholesterol that of course will contribute to the development and progression of this disease. And then we also talk about blood pressure control, and it's important to make sure that blood pressure is controlled according to what the latest guidelines would say, which for most people with any sort of vascular disease, you're looking for a, a top number or a systolic blood pressure less than 150 or a diastolic blood pressure a bottom number less than uh, 80. 
And of course, if somebody has diabetes, it's important that they have very uh, close follow-up with either a primary care physician or perhaps an endocrinologist specializing in diabetes uh, care to be able to make sure that they're managing that appropriately through the combination of diet and exercise and medication. And I think one of the things we've seen rise in the last 10 or 15 years is the use of vaping where people have replaced uh, what we think is traditional tobacco products with still, uh, you know, uh, the inhaled vapes that, you know, people see as not smoking. I guess, Dr. Campbell, what, what advice would you give to the patients out there, you know, in terms of what their cardiovascular risk or their stroke risk or carotid risk when they try and replace cigarettes or uh, other forms of tobacco with, with the vaping uh, mechanisms? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So one of the things that we recognized almost immediately with vaping is that although you're removing some of the tobacco products, Vaping is in itself inflammatory. And, and so as we know, arterial disease in any part of the body, if you have a narrowed blood vessel, inflammation is a very big part of that. And it turns out that vaping inflames the inner lining of the blood vessels, the endothelium, and it also activates platelets, so the circulating cells that are involved in blood clotting. A number of studies now have shown that some of these protective mediators from that inner layer of the carotid artery, nitric oxide, for example, that's decreased by vaping. And so if you take someone that, as Dr. Bezier said, has a substrate already of high cholesterol, maybe high blood pressure, um, they've got risk factors. If they vape on top of that, you may have somebody who already has some narrowing of the carotid artery, but then they could just cause a little piece of that plaque to break off. Um, or, and, and that might manifest as a neurological symptom or a transient visual disturbance, depending on if a little piece of that plaque goes to the brain and, and obviously affects one of the nerves in the brain or maybe even goes to the retina at the back of the eye and affects a small blood vessel there. So vaping is a, an important one to talk about. And I think sometimes we forget to do that. And so the patients always say, well, what, what am I at risk of? And, and we say it's stroke. And you know, maybe Dr. Beige, you could talk about sort of some of the symptoms that patients might self-identify at stroke that might elicit them to, you know, to seek emergency care in the ER. What are the stroke symptoms? And then what we really call a mini stroke and, and, and then how we divide up treating patients, whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic, of, of how tight of, uh, of a narrowing that we get worried about. That's um, all very excellent questions. And I often will have conversations with my patients in the office. Uh, if we know that they have carotid disease, it is very important to know when do you actually go to an emergency room. If you have a loss of vision, similar to a window shade being pulled over a single eye, that would be a sign of potentially some uh, clot or a piece of uh, cholesterol being uh, moved from the carotid artery and up into the brain, specifically actually into the back of the eye. And then the uh, vision in the eye is shut off much like you would turn off a camera. And then uh, if the body is able to clear that, that vision is then uh, uh, restored. And that in and of itself is a red flag and should be evaluated in a, very quickly in the emergency room because it may be a harbinger of a more uh, uh, significant event to come. Uh, the more significant event would be obviously if some of that material would actually end up actually in the brain and then you would lose control of one side of the body or another, whether it be an arm or a leg, but you would lose control or the voluntary movement of that portion of the body. That would be, again, another red flag that would warrant uh, evaluation in an emergency room. Um, the third thing would be uh, some asymmetry of the face, which mostly would be noticed by a family member, 
who would look at the patient and say, well, something's not quite right and give me a smile and they would find an asymmetry of the smile. Or if a person is not able to articulate speech uh, in a normal fashion or it's a garbled speech or they don't comprehend someone speaking to them, those would be all red flags that should be evaluated in an emergency room because really time is of the essence. Much like a heart attack, this is, this is actually a brain attack and the sooner you can get to an emergency room, the better, uh, better off that you have of uh, recovering. And so along those lines, um, Dr. Cameron, at what degree of narrowing would we benefit somebody by fixing those blockages if they've had stroke symptoms as opposed to someone who's yet to have stroke symptoms? And what do we look at as doctors to say, when is it time to sit there and say, should we intervene? And then we can get to how we might intervene. Now, it's a really good question. One of the things we're really blessed with is, as we know, we, the vascular lab here sees about 70,000 studies a year. And so our sonographers are very, very good at carefully assessing just how narrow the carotid artery is. So if somebody has symptoms and the carotid artery is within the moderate range of narrowing, the guidelines do tell us that that in fact is a patient who would benefit from revascularization. That means that either a surgical procedure or stenting um, to make sure that the blood flow is restored. And the sooner you do that, the better. This is something if you've had symptoms and a physician has said that there's only moderate narrowing, not severe narrowing. That's sometimes patients that do benefit from interventions. We have good data on that, as well as medical management. But you know, clearly a patient um, that has severe narrowing of the carotid artery, so by severe, there's different criteria we look at when we look at how fast blood moves through it. But typically, if the blood vessel is narrowed by about 70% or more, most societies would say that's severe narrowing. So in a patient who has that, even if they don't have symptoms, it's incredibly important because we know from the scientific data, you actually need to treat a single digit of patients less than 10 to prevent one stroke. And that's why I would, you know, very aggressive at referring our patients to surgeons and, and to interventional uh, cardiologists when appropriate um, to, to fix that. So when I first started training, surgery was really the only option to fix a carotid where you would basically stop blood flow, scrape out the blockages, restore the artery to its clean, normal status, and then restore flow. And actually, when I first got here 20 years ago, Dr. Bezier uh, spent a lot of time teaching me a lot of the endovascular techniques to treat the same artery, but doing it through a puncture in the groin, or now sometimes a puncture in the neck, where we put a stent in, very similar to we do to the heart arteries. And there's actually now good data showing that both for high risk and low risk patients at five years, they're really both similar outcomes. And so you can treat people very well. Chris, how do you decide as an interventionalist of who should have an intervention or who to have surgery? And then maybe we'll ask Dr. Cameron and I'll comment because we do know there's data showing they both work very well. And a lot of those studies we were part of it, the Cleveland Clinic or even helped drive to show the data is equivalent, but yet, um, you know, a lot of other factors sort of imply of what we can offer patients. Those are excellent questions. And I, I think in my practice, if a patient is extremely old, um, that is 80 years of age or older, or if they have failed kidneys, end-stage renal disease, we know from a lot of the studies both here and around the world that those people do not do well with carotid stent procedures. Uh, I personally say that if a person has had coronary stents or stents elsewhere in the body, say in the legs, and they're, they've been prone to have re-narrowing or re-stenosis of those stents, those patients I will tend to steer towards surgery as well 
because the, the chance of having potentially restenosis of a stent in the carotid uh, would be potentially higher. Uh, currently, we know that it's about 1%, which is a lot better than, say, even the best coronary stents. But if people have shown that to have aggressive disease, I think that those are the patients that probably should go to see a surgeon, have that repaired. I think the other thing that um, we have a lot of different ways to protect the brain when we do carotid stenting. We have filters or sort of like fishing nets that you put distal while you're working, or we can have devices that stop flow or reverse flow proximally. And, and there's times where you're built on the inside anatomically that may affect whether it's able to do that or not. So if there's a lot of disease in the chest or a lot of bendiness in the chest trying to negotiate from the groin up there can be more difficult and more prone to risk. And so sometimes we might be able to do it through surgery or just through a puncture through the neck. And I think there's other times when the artery has a lot of bendiness or torturous above there, we can pick different strategies to do it. But I think the really key thing is that in skilled hands, they both really have very similar outcomes. And so uh, sometimes, you know, I choose surgery, sometimes I choose stenting. And I think really um, there is some advantages and disadvantages to ease. I think the sicker someone's heart is, uh, we do know that stenting probably carries a little less stress on the heart, um, but maybe in some studies a little bit higher stroke risk, but uh, surgery carries a little higher heart attack risk and a little bit lower stroke risk. So you have to balance all those issues. And so when you see somebody in, in, in the office, Dr. Cameron, like how do you decide to say, well, which should we do or see? And I think, you know, because sometimes people can only own one option, whether it's surgery or stenting or sometimes do both. And so what are the kinds of things you try and talk to your patients about when you feel it's appropriate that they'd have their disease addressed? So what I typically do with patients is I'll kind of meet them where they are. Um, sometimes a patient may have a fear of a surgical procedure or, 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 or stenting. They don't want to undergo that. Um, I try and make it clear what the guidelines show and what the data shows. So if somebody has moderate narrowing in the carotid artery and they have symptoms or if they have severe narrowing, no symptoms. Um, I, I think that you know the data is very clear. So I firstly discuss that with the patient. But then the second thing is just has already come up. Um, I consider other things that are going on with a patient. For example, I had a patient with coronary artery disease that we had performed a peripheral intervention on. And um, just examining him, he had a carotid brewery. And so we did the ultrasound and he actually had complete occlusion or blockage of one artery, but then he had an 80%, 85% narrowing here. Um, he had multiple medical issues. He'd already sustained a stroke in the past. This is a very, very high risk individual, but he's basically living off of a thread. And one of the things we're really fortunate at Cleveland Clinic, we're so used to seeing patients like that. And so he was actually the first patient at my prior institution that went through the procedure, just as you described, and I remember explaining it to him this way, well, the stroke risk, I know that that's something you'll be fearful of if you've had one, but this is a special procedure where they can actually place the stent from the outside. And while they're doing that, they have a device placed so that they're stopping blood flow from going up to that part of the brain just temporarily. And they're basically putting it back in the body and they're preventing, if a little piece of plaque breaks off, they're making sure that that won't go to the brain. And, you know, he did, he did fantastically with that procedure. And uh, at the end, you know, he went in fearful, but ultimately thanked us for recommending it. And, and I think those are all really good points. And, and I guess, you know, we talked about primary prevention, Chris, as you talked about, about modifiable factors. After we do surgery or do interventional therapy, can patients just stop all those therapies and, and with their cholesterol and their blood pressure? And, and, I, and I think that's something that people sometimes think, well, we fixed it. 
right. you know, I'm good. Can I just not having else done? And I think that's one of the things we also have to really encourage our patients is that, you know, this is a lifelong process. So what kind of discussions you have with them afterwards in terms of once they're done so that we don't end up working more on other parts of their bodies? Well, that's absolutely uh, correct. I mean, this is a whole body process. So while it may manifest in one location of the body or another, whether it be heart or the carotid artery or maybe a leg artery, it is a whole body process. And so while one part of the body may need a repair with either surgery or stenting, it is a whole body process. And it is, as I tell patients, I wish we had uh, Harry Potter's magic wand that give it a swish and a flick and we could make the disease disappear. But we don't have that. But Nonetheless, we do have all of this treatment and it is very successful, but it requires diligence and continued monitoring throughout a person's life from the time that we detect disease uh, uh, that point forward. It, it is a lifelong uh, process. So, uh, Dr. Cameron, I guess, what are the other things you'd want to get across to patients is sort of, you know, high level that they'd remember in terms of what we've discussed here today? And then if they had more questions, where might they find in the Cleveland Clinic resources a place to sort of to get more information on carotid disease and how we treat it here in Cleveland? I think the biggest thing to emphasize is that uh, we truly are multidisciplinary. And so a patient who may have carotid disease can benefit from the consultation collaboration of vascular medicine physicians that maybe don't do procedures, cardiologists, interventional cardiologists, as well as surgeons. And we make those decisions together for the, the, the betterment of the patient. Um, the website that we have um, has some really uh, fairly up-to-date, actually, and quite comprehensive information on what carotid disease is and risk factors. And one of the things we sometimes find when patients come here is that other medical things that may have led to carotid disease, if not tobacco, um, such as unusual types of cholesterol that patients might carry. We know that there's a special type of cholesterol called lipoprotein A that's very much associated with narrowing of the carotid artery. Um, I see many of those patients. We can detect that. We can get the result within a day and we can put them on the appropriate medications. And not only that, patients also have the benefit of access to the most up-to-date medications, devices, and sometimes clinical trials, when we've got a, a new medication that is proven to be very promising in preliminary studies, patients sometimes uh, like to enroll in those studies and get that most up-to-date treatment. And typically we will advertise those on our website also. So one question we get asked a lot is, what, what do I do or what are my options when one of my carotid arteries is, is completely blocked or 100% blocked? And so maybe I can ask both, uh, Dr. Bezier first and Dr. Cameron to comment a little bit about what that means for the patient, what their options are, and then what they should uh, ha have done and for evaluation and follow up and, and where they stand. What are their risks? Dr. Bezier? If a person does have a completely closed artery but has not suffered a stroke, that to me tells me that that person has had an alternative way of getting blood flow to the brain. And it's an amazing thing. The brain is terribly important uh, as an organ for the human being. We don't have one, two, three, but we have four arteries that go up and feed the brain. And that in the base of the brain, there is interconnections between these arteries that we all have at birth. And if we're lucky, we get to have as we get to be older. And oftentimes one can have a complete occlusion and not suffer a stroke. This does make disease in the remaining open arteries that much more important. So to the point of what to do, 
actually we usually will not operate or will not put a stent in the closed artery, but we will keep careful surveillance on the other arteries that are now, of course, more importantly, feeding the brain, and then really focus aggressive attention on all of those medical risk factors that we know will contribute to the progression of disease in those other arteries. So, Dr. Cameron, what is the risk when an artery closes of having a stroke? And if they've not had a stroke, what's the risk of a future stroke on that same side going forward? And so I think that's the big question that fewer people have is it's blocked. Am I still going to have a stroke on that side? And so I think it's before it closes, what's the risk? And after it closes, what's the risk going on? And what kind of information can we give to those patients? So two important things I um, always like to bring up. Um, I have occasionally, I will say, um, seen a patient who has been told that they have a complete blockage in a carotid artery. Um, it just depends on the type of imaging that they've had done. Um, I have actually seen a few patients where there is flow in that artery. And that's a very important distinction to make. I'm not saying that every patient that has been diagnosed with a blocked artery should hope that they can find an imaging technique to say it's open. But um, I think it is important to clarify whether it is truly completely blocked. Because as you well know, if there's residual flow, even 10%, 15%, some of those patients can get benefit from, from certain procedures. I usually tell patients, if you've not had a stroke and you find yourself to be completely blocked on one side, the most important thing that we can do is be extremely aggressive about medications and risk factors to prevent you from having a blockage in another artery or a piece of plaque breaking off. Because if you've had one artery that's narrowed, um, a patient's body is telling me that it has the ability to narrow arteries. And so we must be extremely aggressive, even in a patient who's never had symptoms. Now, for a patient as a complete blockage on one side, I would tend to agree a common question that we have is, should we find somebody that will open that? And the data is quite clear, actually. With a complete blockage, the brain has got this wonderful capacity to divert blood flow so that the amount of blood flow it's seeing throughout is actually no different. And it can do that by just adjusting within the brain the amount of blood flow going up the other artery. And so just being aggressive with risk factors and seeing if there's residual disease. If we do an ultrasound, for example, if I see some soft plaque there, we know that patients with soft plaque, those are the patients that are higher risk of that soft plaque breaking off. And so I might decide to give a different combination of medications, a different combination of platelet blockers or blood thinners, if you will, um, depending on what I see in the, the artery that is not narrowed, even though the other one might be completely blocked. That's a good question. I think those are key points. I mean, for the patients, before the artery blocks up and closes, when it closes abruptly, there at least one in four patients can have a very disabling stroke. Once it's totally blocked and they haven't had a stroke, as everybody's pointed out, there's really good flow from the other parts of the brain. And so it's really about getting rid of those risk factors that are modifiable and getting them as best as possible to preserve the other arteries. And so opening up a blocked artery after it's confirmed truly to be blocked is really not beneficial. And we know that has even a higher stroke rate than leaving yeah. it alone. With that, I really wanna uh, thank uh, both Dr. Bezier, Dr. Cameron, and the people that have either watched or listened in today with our little update on carotid artery disease. If you have more questions, the Cleveland Clinic website will have more on the three of us as well as the Heart and Vascular Institute and how we work very well together to make sure that we treat the entire person. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org 
slash loveyourheartpodcast.